Well, as we begin, let me give you a little backstory. Kind of led me to what I'm teaching on today. I think I've shared this with you before. One of the things I love to do when I'm driving my semi-truck at work is to just listen to my audio Bible. I love listening to entire books in one sitting. I think it really helps to get the flow of a book in context. And when I do this, usually, most of the time, something will just stand out to me. Sometimes it doesn't. But a few weeks ago, I was driving my usual route to Orlando, and I was listening to the book of Romans. And for whatever reason, Romans 8, verse 1, just popped out at me. It just grabbed my attention. Now, keep in mind, I've read Romans a ton of times, I've even, but I've never taught through it. So there are some sections that I've spent more time on than others. And I was certainly aware of Romans 8.1, but as I was listening to it this last time, there's a word in that verse that just hit me and got me, got the wheels turning in my head. Now I'm sure probably all of you are familiar with this verse. Some of you may even have it memorized. It's one of the most popular verses in the Bible. If you don't think you have it memorized, as soon as I read it, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that verse. Romans 8.1 states, There is therefore now no condemnation to those or for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some manuscripts will add who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, it's easy to understand why this verse is so popular. You have what can be considered a very short summary of the gospel. It's a verse full of hope. There is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict for those who are in Christ Jesus. And like I said, I knew this verse, but as I was hearing it read a few weeks back, that, there's that word. It just popped out and grabbed my attention, and the word was, therefore. Now, when I heard that, I paused the audio, and I was like, wait a second. When we think of this verse, of that statement, there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. We tend to kind of treat it as like a standalone verse. And what I mean by that is we'll often just throw that verse out there with, without any context because it seems so straightforward. It seems self-explanatory. Does it even need context? In fact, I've heard people quote this verse and actually leave the word therefore out. I probably have done it. But I got thinking that word therefore is really a big deal. Because what that word is telling me is that this isn't a standalone verse. What that word is telling me is that Paul's declaration of no condemnation is an inference that follows from something that he has already said. That's what the word therefore is there for. You're waiting for it. That's one of my favorite plans. It means for that reason, for this reason. And so then I thought, okay. So a proper understanding of Romans 8.1 is going to hinge on how I understand what precedes it. But then the question became, well, what has Paul already said that led him to draw out this inference that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? And so then I began recalling in my mind what I had just heard read in chapters 1 through 7. What is Paul tying 8.1 to? Is 8-1 an inference drawn from everything that he has said? 
in chapters 1 through 7? Or is he referring back to something he said in chapter 4? Is it chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7? What is he tying it back to? Well, at that point, I unpaused the audio and I let it play a little longer. And then I heard this in chapter 8, verse 2, next verse. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice the word for there. The word for indicates that what Paul said in verse 2 provides the reason for what he said in verse 1. In other words, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And for that reason, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's this phrase, the law of sin and death, that immediately made me think of Romans chapter 7. You could go back to chapter 6, but especially chapter 7, because Paul had just said in chapter 7, right before our verse here in 8.1, where I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, my, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's that phrase again. So I don't think there's any question that when Paul said in 8, 1 and 2 that there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, that he is drawing this out of what he had just said about the law of sin and the body of death at the end of chapter 7. And like I said, you, you, you possibly could go back further in chapter 6 because Paul is going to restate some things in 7 or what he says in 6. But at the very least, Romans 8.1 is meant to be understood in light of what Paul says at the end of chapter 7. And it was at that very moment that I got hooked into this train of thought and I couldn't let it go for weeks. I had something totally different planned for today, but I just couldn't let this go. It's, it's like, I'm hooked, I've got to figure this out. And here's why. Because most of you... Probably most of you are aware of this. I know some of you are. The end of chapter 7 has caused quite a debate among uh, theologians, particularly starting in verse 14 to the end of chapter, or the end of, uh, of the chapter in verse 25. In Romans 7, 14 through 25, Paul is describing an experience that he is having or had with sin. And the huge debate has been, is Paul describing his current experience at the time that he's writing this as a regenerate person? Or is Paul describing his life experience before he was converted? When he says, for example, that he is of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then he cries down in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Is he talking about his then experience as a believer? Or is he giving a flashback to his life as a Pharisaical Jew right before the Spirit came and regenerated him? Augustine took the position that Paul was talking about his experience as a believer. John Calvin followed in those footsteps. And I think it's safe to say that probably the majority of Reformed theologians did as well. 
On the other hand, we've had some very able, godly, gifted theologians and pastors who took the other position. Martin Lloyd-Jones took that position. And one of my personal favorites, the late Dr. Robert Raymond. You've heard that word name a ton of times, haven't we, in our catechism class? In his systematic theology, there's an appendix in which Raymond gives 10 reasons for why he thought that Paul was drawing, quote, upon his own experience as Saul, the most zealous law-keeping Pharisee of his day who had become aware through the law as applied by the spirit of his own innate sinfulness, and quote, with words providing him from the enlightened vantage point which he, which he now has as a Christian, sets forth both the impotence of the unregenerate ego to do good against the power of indwelling sin and the inability and weakness of the law due to human depravity to deliver the unregenerate ego from sin slavery, unquote. Now, let me just say here, I think it's important to point out that Dr. Raymond did not view this passage, that even though he did not view this passage as describing a believer's struggle against sin, Raymond certainly did not deny that Christians struggle. Just read his systematic theology. He talks about progressive sanctification. It's just that when when he came to this particular section in Romans 7, he didn't think that this part was talking about that. Now, when you hear that, you may say, well, well, then what difference does it make? I mean, Raymond didn't go off into some crazy heresy. He didn't go off into some weird stuff like perfectionism or something like that. In fact, he essentially ended up in the same place that Calvin and Augustine did. So why does it matter? Why is it important? Well, let me tell you why I think it matters. It's because of that word, therefore. When Paul states that, quote, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus... The word therefore is telling you that Paul has a very specific person in mind. It's the person he just described at the end of Romans 7. And so your understanding and appreciation for the depth of what he's declaring in this verse is going to hinge on your understanding of Romans 7. And does that make a difference? Yes. As I hope to show you. You see, it'd be one thing for Paul to describe the unregenerate person who comes to realize that I can't save myself through law-keeping, and so he cries out to God to save him, and God does, and now Paul can say to that brand-new convert, now there is no condemnation for you. And don't get me wrong, if that's what Paul is indeed saying, that's certainly still great news. But what if Romans 8.1 goes further than that? What if there's something more to this that maybe we're not catching? Imagine this second scenario. What if you're already regenerated? God has already justified you. You've been a believer now for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years or so. And during that time, you've come to realize just how sinful you really are. And you're battling every day. You're struggling. You've lost a few battles here and there. And the struggle against sin is wearing you out. You might even be getting depressed. Heck, you might even be getting suicidal. You've heard us say up here multiple times how hard the Reformed faith is. Perhaps you're one of those people that heard that and said to yourself, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I know my weaknesses. I know my struggles. I don't think I can do this. 
And now imagine Paul turning to you in that condition and saying, brother, sister, there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a big difference. And the difference is not that the second scenario takes away from what was said in the first scenario. Our justification is still a big, de- still a big deal. Our being freed from the guilt of sin is a massive deal. But the difference is, is in what scenario two adds to that. When it's the believer who is daily struggling and battling, and it's the believer who's coming to a deeper sense of his sin to the point where he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? And Paul says to that person, there is now no condemnation. See, he's going deeper. He's not just talking about a freedom from the guilt of sin. He's speaking to the freedom that we have from the power of sin. Now, I don't know if that's registering with you yet, but let me put it this way. If you were like me, when I first came to the point of saving faith, I felt like there was just a massive weight off my shoulders. And I'll never forget the joy and excitement I felt. You know, God had forgiven me of my past sins. I was free from that guilt. But then what happened? Life happened. (laughs) It's like I was living in this sweet, blissful, heavenly dream state. And someone came and just threw water in my face. Woke me up. I'm finding out I still have problems. I still have some bad habits. I'm still struggling with sin. And I'm not always successful in my struggles. And so that joy and excitement began to fade away. Reality is setting in. I'm still that same old rotten guy. In fact, the more I read the Bible, the more I'm realizing that I'm actually worse than I thought I was. I know that I've been set free from the guilt of my sin, but man, as I'm engaged in this conflict and struggle daily with it, it certainly doesn't feel like I've been freed from the power of sin. Because if, I have been, because if I've been set free from the power of sin, why am I still failing? Why am I still sinning? And I think it is exactly at that point where Paul steps in and says to us, comforts us and says, look, in your struggles and your battles, it may not feel this way, but know this. This struggle you're going through is the normal experience for believers on this earth, this side of Christ's return and resurrection. And know that even now, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, I think that's what Paul's driving at here in Romans 8.1. You see, when we quote Romans 8.1 out of context and we ignore that word, therefore, it could come across as though Paul's just merely reminding us of something that's happened in the past when we first came to faith, when we moved from being unregenerate to regenerate. 
When in reality, Paul's looking at you, the seasoned and struggling believer, and saying to you, brother, sister, in your struggles, in your daily battles, in your frustration with your sins, in your fear of not always living as the person you are declared to be, know that there is no condemnation for you. I mean, I can't think of anything more encouraging and comforting for Paul to say to such a person than that. Now, I realize at this point, it's like, well, Jason, that sounds all nice and encouraging, but is that really what he's doing here? I mean, I've just asserted it. I've really explained how we got there. So what I want to do now, and this is a tall task, but I want to survey quickly Romans 6 through 7 and just make a few observations demonstrating why I think this is where this is going. Well, to set up chapter 6 and 7, consider what Paul said in chapter 5. Paul ended chapter 5 with a contrast between two men, Adam and Christ. And a lot of the language for 6 and 7 comes from the language used to describe these two men and the outcome of their lives. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, in death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the uh, trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more would those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Whereas by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was created by God as the federal head of mankind within that first covenant there in the garden. And we don't really need to get into the details of all this because we've just talked about this recently in our systematic lessons. But in short, Adam was given the law and he sinned against God in that first covenant. And what did that bring into the world? Sin came into the world and death through sin. And the judgment following that one trespass brought condemnation. With Adam comes sin, judgment, condemnation, and death. Also notice the mentioning of the law in verse 20. What happened when the law came in? Meaning when God gave man uh, through Moses the Ten Commandments written on stone. One would think that the detailing of the law given to man would help restrain sin. But just the opposite happened. Paul writes the law came in to increase the trespass so that sin reigned in death. 
Murray writes, when the law came in through Moses, there was henceforth a multiplication of the kind of transgression exemplified in Adam's trespass, that is to say, transgression of clearly revealed commandment. The more explicit the revelation of law, the more heinous it aggravated are the violations of it. But now notice the contrast in Christ. Christ, through his obedience, brings righteousness, justification, grace, and eternal life. Again, he says in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how chapter 5 ends. And if you think about it, these last two verses in chapter 5 can kind of serve as a header for what follows in chapters 6 through 8. That header is, grace will reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that what chapters 6 and 8 are going to do is unpack that statement, that header. What will that grace reigning through righteousness leading to eternal life look like? What does it involve? And if you kind of just stand back and look at chapters 6 and 7 as a whole, you can see how Paul unpacks this through a series of questions. There are five questions that help build these two chapters. And those questions are, one, he asks in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers that question in verses 2 through 14. Then comes the second question in 6.15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? He answers that in verses 15 through 23. Then comes the third question in Romans 7, 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Paul then in verses 2 through 6 explains that rhetorical question. Then comes the fourth question in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? Paul answers that in verses 7 through 12. And then lastly comes the fifth question, did that which is good, that is the law, then bring death to me? And he answers that in verses 13 through 25. You see that when Paul asks and answers a question, he says something in the answer that raises the next question. And in doing this, he's addressing a number of things in these two chapters, all of which could be said to be expanding upon what grace reigning through righteousness leading to eternal life looks like. That's how, at least in my mind, I'm outlining Romans 6 and 7. So what all does Paul say in this? How does he answer these questions? Well, there's enough material in these chapters to preach multiple sermons, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you the 10,000-foot view. And perhaps the best way to do this is just to read his answers to his questions. Take, for example, the question, what shall we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why is he asking this? Because if we just saw at the end of chapter 5, he said that when law came... Or, when the law came in, sin increased. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. To which someone may respond, well, hey, if increasing sin increases grace, let's sin. So he asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's his answer? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You know, it's just like the unregenerate sinful man to take hold of God's grace and abuse it in justifying more sin. But Paul says that can't be. Why? Because though justification alone does not produce a change in our moral nature, being that it is a legal declaration, it is nonetheless inseparably linked to our sanctification, in which the Spirit, quotes infuses grace, as our catechism says, and enables to the exercise thereof so that sin is not only pardoned, justification, but actually subdued. Through sanctification, we are, quote, growing up to perfection, end quote. That's where this grace, reigning through righteousness, leading to eternal life, is taking us. Jerry Bridges offers a nice summary of Paul's point in this section when he says this, and it's a little lengthy, but it's very helpful. To die to sin then means, first of all, to die to its legal or penal reign, and secondly, as a necessary result, to die to its dominion over us. There's no such thing as salvation from sin's penalty without an accompanying deliverance from sin's dominion. This obviously does not mean that we no longer sin, but that sin no longer reigns in our lives. So how did we die to sin? We have already noted that we died to sin through our union with Christ. Paul said in Romans 6.10 that Christ died to sin. And in verse 8, he said that we died with Christ. That Christ died to sin is a rather startling but wonderful statement. Christ did not die to the dominion of sin, as he was never under it. However, when he was made sin for us, 1 Corinthians 5.21, that is, when he was charged with our sin, he did come under its legal reign and was made subject to its penalty. We've looked at that in atonement. When Jesus died, he died to the legal reign of sin. Through our federal union with him in his death, we too died to the legal reign of sin. But because the legal reign and the practical dominion of sin in our lives are inseparable, we died not only to its legal reign, but also to its corrupting dominion over us. Hallelujah, what a savior we have who was, not, who was able to not only free us from sin's penalty, but also from its dominion. Well, the question arises, however, if we die to sin's dominion, why do we still struggle with sin in our daily lives? Well, when Paul wrote, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? He was referring not to the activity of committing sins, 
but to continuing to live under the dominion of sin. This word live means to continue in or abide in. It connotes a settled course of life. And so to use Paul's words from Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind, that is one who is under sin's dominion, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But the believer who has died to sin's reign and dominion delights in God's law. The believer approves of it as holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7, 12, even though he or she may struggle to obey it. We must distinguish between the activity of sin, which is true in all believers, and the dominion of sin, which is true of all unbelievers. And then Sinclair Ferguson has written, sin is not primarily an activity of man's will so much as the captivity which man suffers as an alien power grips his soul. It is an axiom for John Owen, who's teaching Ferguson and summarizing, that while the presence of sin can never be abolished in this life, nor the influence of sin altered, its dominion can indeed must be destroyed if a man is to be a Christian. Therefore, a believer cannot continue in sin. We no longer live in the realm of sin under its reign and practical dominion. We have, to use Paul's words, died to sin. We indeed do sin, and even our best deeds are stained with sin. But our attitude toward it is essentially different from that of an unbeliever. We succumb to temptations, either from our own evil desires, James 1.13, or from the world or from the devil, Ephesians 2. But this is different from a settled disposition. And further, to paraphrase from Ferguson and John Owen, our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. Well, a few things we can glean from this. Notice that in justification and sanctification, God is addressing the legal reign of sin and the practical dominion of sin in our lives. In our union with Christ, we die not only to the legal reign, but also to its corrupting dominion, its power over us. But then secondly, notice that in this process of sanctification, sin is never fully removed from our lives. Notice that when Paul says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, he goes on to say, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul wasn't teaching some crazy, unrealistic perfectionism in our lives. I have to say that because some people read this language here you know, Paul's talking about walking in newness of life, being set free from sin, no longer being under sin's dominion. They read as though, as though we can conquer sin perfectly in this life. And while that may sound great, it's delusional. You know, I used to work with a guy in Alabama. He told me he no longer sins. He's free. And one day I said to him, well, that's not true. You know, I know that because you just lied to me. What did John say? We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And so saying that we still have sin may seem discouraging, but not to me. It's realistic. It helps me understand my current experience in this life. You're going to sin. There's no surprise there. But the real telling moment is what you do with that sin when it happens. 
And then thirdly, notice that for Paul, we are no longer under the dominion of sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace. This is what leads to his next question. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And what is Paul's answer to that? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, if you're paying attention, I just combined two questions in your sections. Why did I do this? Because if you just heard, the rhetorical question in 7.1 continues to flow or continues the flow of thought from 6, uh, verse 15. In other words, when Paul asks, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace, chapter 6, verse 16, all the way to chapter 7, verse 6, addresses that question. And what are a couple of things we can glean from this? And ultimately, ultimately notice that there are only two people in this world. Those who are enslaved to sin or those who are enslaved to Christ. That's it. Enslavement to sin leads to death, but enslavement to God leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We all serve someone. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's it. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutrality here. But then secondly, notice that who you are enslaved to will reveal itself in your life. Both paths produce fruit. The fruit of the one is lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, and then finally death, while the other path produces righteousness, leading to more righteousness, and then finally eternal life. You know, it's crazy to think there are people out there who deny progressive sanctification. Well, I've got news for you. You can't avoid fruit bearing. It's impossible. Your life, 
your actions, your speech will reveal who you are. In fact, you could almost say, and I know this is not the meaning of the word sanctification, but you could almost say there's another type of sanctification, not in the sense of holiness, but in the sense of being set apart. If you're not being set apart unto holiness and growing up to perfection, then you're set apart into lawlessness and death. That's the only other option. You either fall in one or the other. And so it's never a question of whether you are bearing fruit or not, but what kind of fruit are you bearing? What does your life reflect? Is it a life of foolishness, disobedience, a life that is predominantly led astray and enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others, Titus 3.3, 3. or is it a life that seeks to avoid such things? And then thirdly, notice how one goes from being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. Paul says we do it by dying to the law. John Murray states, law, as we found in 614, confirms and seals our bondage to sin. As long as law governs us, there is no possibility of release from the bondage of sin. So the only alternative is discharge from the law. This occurs in our union with Christ and his death because all the virtue of Christ's death in meeting the claims of the law become ours. and We are free from the bond service and power of sin to which the law has consigned us. But then this raises the next set, two sets of questions. Paul's language here of law increasing sin and his language that we have to die to the law in order to live unto God doesn't sound like on the surface that Paul thinks too highly of the law. In fact, many have interpreted Paul that very way. It's almost as if Paul's saying that the law is our enemy. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Verse 7. And how does Paul answer that? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did you hear that? The law of God is holy. It is righteous and good. The law of God promised life. So where's the problem? The problem isn't with the law, it's with us. Go back to Romans 5. The problem is that you have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And that sinful nature deceives us in thinking that we can take hold of God's law and obtain righteousness through our own doing. But all that ends up doing is arousing your sinful nature to greater sin and greater guilt. You see, the law doesn't have the power to keep you from sinning, nor can it atone for your sin. And that's not a strike against the law because God never intended for the law to do that. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then Romans 8, 3 through 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then that finally then leads us to our last question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? You see why he's asking that? He just said that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So is it the commandment that killed me? Was it the commandment that brought death? His answer, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become simple beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. Now we're finally starting to get to this end of seven. Listen to this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. With that, we finally come to our last section. Perhaps you can see now why some may go the route of saying that Paul is describing the experience of an unbeliever here. Paul here describes himself as carnal, sold under sin, of the flesh, sin dwelling in him. He's doing things that he, know, that he knows is wrong, and he sees a law of sin waging war against him and taking him captive. On the surface, this doesn't sound like the Paul who we just heard in chapter 6. The Paul who says we've died to sin, that we are no longer under its reign and dominion, that we are married to Christ and are bear righteous fruit for God. But I don't think that's the case. Again, keep in mind everything that we've seen leading up to this point. We began with the end of chapter 5 by saying that what follows is going to unpack Paul's statement that grace will reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's exactly what we've seen. This entire time Paul has been addressing the believer. It's the believer who's united to Christ. It's the believer who has died to the legal rule of sin to its corrupting power. It's the believer who was once a slave to sin, but is now married to another and is to bear fruit for God. And in the process of explaining all this, he had to explain the relationship that we have to the law, which in turn led to what seemed on the surface to be disparaging remarks about the law. But that isn't the case at all. And so now he has to defend, he has to defend the law. And the whole time he's doing this, he's doing so so as to explain how grace will reign through righteousness. The purpose of Romans 7, 14, 14 through 25 then, is not to provide some sort of contrast be, between what we are now as believers versus what we were 
as unregenerate people. Paul's already addressed that. The point of contrast is between us versus the law. And how do you think Paul is going to describe himself, regenerate or not, in contrast to God's perfect, holy, righteous, and good law? Of course he's going to use the strong language against himself. I mean, God forbid that Paul here would give even the slightest hint that God's holy, righteous, and good law has a problem. You see this contrast strongly in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I, Paul, am of the flesh, sold under sin. So yes, the language he uses of himself, even as a regenerate person, is going to be strong. But consider what it is that he's contrasting himself to and defending. He's defending the holy, perfect, righteous, and good law of God. And so while there may be some language here that seems odd for him to say about himself as a believer, there is also language here to indicate that he can't be talking about an unregenerate person. Again, let me remind you of what what we've seen. Part of the reason I read all of chapter 6 was so that you catch on to the language that Paul uses throughout of how he's declared to be something in Christ, and then he's told based on that declaration to therefore do something. For example, in Romans 6.6, 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. But then he commands in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. But then notice in verse 12, the command in light of what he is in Christ, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then we see this again in Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He then commands in the very next verse, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So do you see that? You are to do what you've been declared to be in Christ. Because in this life, short of resurrection, there's always going to be that tension. There's always going to be that struggle. Your salvation, as Pastor JP has been speaking to us, is in process. And that process will never reach perfection in this life. Yes, your old self was crucified, so now consider yourself dead to sin. Yes, sin will not have dominion over you, but now don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Yeah, you've been set free from sin and made a slate of righteousness, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And in chapter 7, we see that same tension. Verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see members, in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 16, now I do not... Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. But, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then again in verse 14, as we've already read, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Do you hear the tension here in Paul, in his life? What unregenerate man is going to say, I know the law is spiritual? I agree that the law is good. I serve the law in my mind. 
and I delight in the law of God in my inner being. No, these are the words of a man who's been regenerated, who's been changed. These are the words of a man who has come to love and esteem the law of God, while at the same time acknowledging the presence of indwelling sin. Furthermore, what unregenerate person will say, as Paul does in verse 15, that I do the very thing I hate? And then what if Paul's saying that I am of the flesh, I am carnal? That doesn't seem to sound like a Christian would say that about themselves, would it? It's probably one of the strongest arguments that you'll hear. But the answer is, yeah, Christians can't say that about themselves. Listen to what Paul writes to those in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? But when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? And then what about the language of Paul saying he's sold into sin? Is Paul speaking of a permanent bondage? Or could he just simply be alluding to the possibility that even a believer can fall temporarily into that state? Listen to Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why would he command them not to do to? to be aware of that if it wasn't possible. And while we're in Galatians 5, we find another passage here that clearly parallels what we have here in Romans 7. Listen to this, Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. See if you can hear Paul in Romans 7. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, uh, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And that's a direct parallel. Well, there are some other observations I could point out, but I'm out of time. And I realize that was kind of wordy going through that little, but what's the conclusion to all this? What was the point? Well, I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag in the beginning, but let's return to it. The point was this. After you consider all the flow and context of Romans 6 through 7, and you see that Paul ends in 7 with this section of describing his Christian experience, in contrast to and to defend the perfection of the law, all of which was done to unpack the statement that grace will reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. With all that in consideration, now hear again the words of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but that just changes it. I like what Piper says here. Indwelling sin is to be mortified, put to death, but there are times when it suddenly captures us and makes slaves of us before we know what is happening. Or sometimes it comes with such subtle wooings that we know exactly what is happening and we let ourselves be deceived. This does not mean we are not Christian. The test is, do we love the law? Do we hate our failure? Do we cry out in dismay over our sinful condition? Do we look to Christ and his righteousness? Do we fly to the cross? Do we confess and repent and renounce Satan and set our faces to go forward with Jesus on the Calvary Road? And then in another place he says this, by faith in Christ we are united to him. That's what we've learned here in Romans 6. He becomes our pardon and our righteousness and his spirit is given to us. And the issue now is not do you have excessive desires or distorted desires. The issue is will you continue to cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, and look away from yourself to Christ as your only hope and fight in the power that he supplies and put to death the deeds of the body? Or will you surrender and sell out finally to an alien slave master and make peace with the body of death and the law of sin? That's the word of encouragement I want to leave for you today. And I truly believe that's the word of encouragement Paul meant for us in Romans 8.1. Is the Reformed faith difficult? Absolutely. Are you going to struggle and fight? Absolutely. Are you going to have those moments of failure? Yes, Paul assures us of that in Romans 7. But know, beloved, that the presence of the struggle in you is a sign of life. So don't cave. Don't give up. And I'll close with this. And I, had, I didn't notice this until recently, but I believe in 1 Corinthians 15, we have another parallel to what Paul is saying here in Romans 7. Listen to what he says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. That sounds like body of death, doesn't it? What's a mortal body? Death subject to death, or body subject to death. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That sounds just like Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If that is the parallel, then notice that Paul has another therefore in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on that. 
But notice his therefore now in this context. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So to again, borrow Piper's words, remember that there is a world of difference, a difference between heaven and hell, between a soldier who experiences tactical defeats, but he keeps fighting on his way to victory, versus a soldier who surrenders to the enemy because war is just too painful and the enemy territory is just too attractive. There is a difference between a divided man of Romans 7 and a sellout. Don't sell out. Trust Christ and fight sin. That's my encouragement to you today. Let's pray.